Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that once you pass puberty and stop growing, it kind of seems like you've settled into the body that you're going to have forever. But the cells inside your body are constantly dying and being replaced in a process that's called cell turnover. This process is key to many of the bulletproof techniques we talk about because if you have better stuff to make cells, you'll make better cells and increase your strength and resilience over time. The average lifespan of all the cells in your body is about seven years. So it's kind of like you really are a new person every seven years. But there are some exceptions to that rule. Stem cells from bone marrow divide and produce about two and a half million red blood cells every second. So your blood gets replaced almost completely every four months. For a long time, we didn't believe you could even grow new brain cells, but it turns out you actually can. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's interview is with Chris Kresser from chriscresser.com. Chris is one of the smartest and most objective members of the alternative health community, and he's got a great blog that I do read. His site produces some of the best content available on the web, and we're thrilled to have him on the show. We're going to talk about supplements, dairy, acne, biogenic amines, cooling brain inflammation, heavy metals, fish oil, and a bunch of other stuff. This is one of our really, really good episodes, maybe one of the best ones so far. Chris Kresser is a licensed acupuncturist and practitioner of integrative medicine. He's one of the most well-known and respected health bloggers on the internet. He comes on Upgraded Self Radio today to talk about some of the most important things you need to know about health and wellness. I'm really personally excited to have Chris up here because I look at his blog before I look at many of the other blogs that I see. I think it's it's one that if you listen to the show should absolutely be on your short list of blogs to follow for your own health and wellness and that of your family. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, so let's just jump right in. How did you get interested in diet and health in the first place? 
Well, actually, I was probably one of those weird kids that's been interested, that was interested in it early on. You know, most of my friends were eating junk food, and I, I grew up eating a pretty healthy diet, and I have my parents to thank for that. And I think, uh, you know, from a pretty early age, I just enjoyed how I felt eating that way. And I was a competitive athlete growing up and, and really interested in sports and, and performance. And so I, I was eating what I thought was well then. You know, I wasn't aware of paleo at that time, of course, but I, I was doing my best to eat a healthy diet in, all through high school. I was pretty fascinated by nutrition, started studying studying it fairly early on and and then I, I think I I really got even more interested uh when I got sick and this you know some people who know me and my story I, I did a lot of traveling in my 20s and I spent some time in Indonesia and I got sick with uh parasites and amoebic dysentery there which totally wrecked my gut even after I got rid of those pathogens, I had a lot of rebuilding to do. And uh, when I started to look around for help doing that in the conventional medical paradigm, there really wasn't a lot of help available. It, you know, it was I was pretty shocked with the lack of understanding about nutrition and and just basic phys physiology even uh, in relation to nutrition. So I decided to if I was going to optimize my own health, that I would have to seek out other sources of information and learn as much as I could about it. So that's uh, that's pretty much how I uh, decided to go back to school and study um, integrative medicine and, and then start a career uh, helping other people do the, do, uh, the same thing. It, it's amazing what a little bit of enlightened self-interest will do for your motivation, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. I <laughs> couldn't agree more. I mean, I have no idea. It's it's interesting to consider, you know, where would I be if I hadn't gone to Indonesia and gotten sick? I really have no idea. Um, but I, as difficult as that experience was for several years, I'm I'm completely grateful that it happened because I, I feel like what I'm doing now is my passion and. I feel like I have a lot to contribute in this area, and I, I feel completely aligned with my purpose and and what I'm doing here on this planet. So, I think there was, you know, whatever guiding force led me to that, you know, to this place. I, I'm grateful for it. Yeah, it, it seems like uh, the universe will keep yelling uh, until you listen. The cosmic <laughs> two by four, I call it. <laughs> there you Some go. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, I call it a two by four because in my case, apparently I wasn't listening well enough because I got hit pretty hard with it in, in such a way that I couldn't possibly ignore it. I don't really recommend that as a, as a, as a route. I, <laughs> I think uh, it's much easier if you listen more carefully early on, but of course that's not, that's easier said than done for most of us. And sometimes it takes a kind of cataclysmic life event to get our attention. It sure does. I, when when uh, I weighed 300 pounds in my, my mid-20s and my brain stopped working, that was pretty much my wake-up call. But it's the same thing. Somebody's going to make you pay attention. Uh, or you may be lucky and just be healthy enough that you never have to pay attention. But then you're missing out on some of the really high-performance states that you're capable of that you just wouldn't know about unless you started looking. That's right. I mean, it, I sometimes hear from my patients um, who feel kind of gypped off that they got sick. And and what I often tell them is, look, you know, a lot of people are just kind of getting by and they don't really know that something's wrong because they look around, they see a lot of other people feeling the same way. And so who's like, you know, who's who's more fortunate in that circumstance? Somebody who gets a pretty serious chronic illness, but as a result of that, totally turns their life and their health around and maybe discovers new things um, like meditation or, you know, something that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten into because of their health that completely improves other aspects of their life. Or the person that's just kind of muddling through is doing okay, doesn't have any serious problems, but hasn't been motivated to optimize their health or their their um, cognitive function or their psycho-spiritual, emotional well-being. You know, that's that's probably a great segue into one of the big questions that I, I wanted to ask you, one of the, the big topics for today, is 
how gut health affects brain function. Cause you mentioned psychosomatic and the spiritual parts of things. And a lot of those seem to just reside in the gut as much as they do in the head. What's your take on gut health and brain function and, and how they work together? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think this is actually one of the most fascinating and uh, up and coming areas of medicine. If you look in the scientific literature over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of studies published on the gut brain axis it's, it hasn't really percolated down into the mainstream consciousness yet, but uh, I think the connection between the gut and the brain is driving a lot of the modern diseases that are becoming epidemic now, like autism, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, depression, mood and behavioral disorders, in addition to all of the gut disorders that a lot of people are already familiar with. Um, there's pretty much no brain disorder that I'm aware of that doesn't have some connection in the literature to gut issues. And there are no gut issues that don't cause some impact, uh, negative impact on the brain. So it goes both ways, but let's start by talking about the gut. Yeah. If you have an infection like a parasite or an opportunistic overgrowth of an opportunistic bacteria or a pathogenic bacteria like H. pylori, and then you have dysbiosis, which means an imbalance of good and bad bacteria in the gut, and then leaky gut or intestinal permeability where the, the gut barrier system breaks down and you get a penetration of, of molecules into the bloodstream that should never be there in the first place, all of this produces inflammation a chronic low-grade state of inflammation. And these inflammatory cytokines will then travel through the blood and cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, the blood-brain barrier is another barrier system that in a normal, healthy person is intact and would prevent that from happening. But these inflammatory cytokines, one of the impacts that they have is that they make that blood-brain barrier permeable and you get a leaky brain in addition to having a leaky gut. You don't hear that phrase very often, but it's it's actually a significant contributor to disease. Uh, so these inflammatory cytokines cross the blood-brain barrier and they activate the microglial cells in the brain. We have two types of cells in the brain. We have uh, neurons and then microglial cells. And the microglial cells are the basically the immune system in the brain. And when these cells get activated, they, that's inflammation of the brain. And this inflammation in the brain, once it's turned on, suppresses nerve conductance. And then a decrease in nerve conductance is what causes all of these characteristic sim symptoms and, and conditions like depression, brain fog, memory and cognitive problems, mood and behavioral issues, um, all, all of the things that are epidemic now and seem to just be increasing. You also get a reduced motor activity in the vagal motor nuclei because about 90% of the output of the brain goes into the pontomedullary area, which in turn goes into the vagus nerve or the, pneumo or the vagus area, the pneumogastric nerve, and that enervates the gut. So this causes, as you can probably uh, tell, this is a, a vicious cycle that happens here. And that's why we have a saying in functional medicine, fire in the gut, fire in the brain. So if, if the brain is inflamed, you're going to have problems with the gut because a lot of the brain's output goes right into the gut. If the gut is inflamed, you're going to have inflammation in the brain because of the, uh, the mechanism that I just mentioned, the inflammatory cytokines crossing into the blood-brain barrier. So this explains why... Uh, there's such a tight correlation between gut and brain problems. And if you think about two of the populations that have the most messed up guts, they would be senior seniors and autistic children. And, you know, seniors have Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, memory issues, all kinds of cognitive problems. And they also have hypochlorhydria, low stomach acid, atrophic gastritis, constipation, um, they suffer from a lot of gut issues or incontinence or something like that. So there's a very um, close relationship there. And then autistic kids, I mean, show me an autistic kid that doesn't have gut issues. I've never seen one in my practice. I've never even heard of one. Um, so <laughs> it's universal pretty much. And the common mechanisms there are neuro, neurodegeneration, 
uh, so a degeneration of the neurons, and also neuroinflammation, which is the activation of those microglial cells. Now, the, the problem with the microglial cells becoming activated and inflamed is that uh, you know, in the rest of our body, we have a very sophisticated system for regulating inflammation and the inflammatory response. So if we, we get a cut on our arm, uh, we'll have an immediate increase in inflammation, and that inflammation is, is not all bad. It's necessary for life. You know, we can't heal without inflammation. But in a typical scenario, if you get a cut on your arm, the inflammation will start. That begins the healing process. But at the end, you know, once that's finished with, the T regulatory cells uh, or the TH3 cells start to turn off the inflammation and clear away the debris and get back to a normal state of functioning. And that, that's just basic normal uh, immunology. But in the brain, the microglial cells, it's a lot less sophisticated how those work. And T regulatory cells can't turn off brain inflammation. So once your brain is inflamed, it's very difficult to turn off that inflammation without some kind of intervention. And I think this is what happens with, with elderly people or autistic kids or anyone who's dealing with a gut-brain axis issue is that um, even if you, you deal with the, the, the underlying cause, sometimes that's not enough to hit the reset button. A good analogy would be if, if you get if stabbed with a knife and someone and the person who stabs you pulls the knife out that's a good start you know <laughs> healing process but uh that's not going to do it if you just take the knife out you've got a big gaping wound there and there, there's still healing that needs to happen after that so that's a big question there and I, I know more people have brain inflammation than know it what's what's the big reset button that you work with in practice <laughs> Well, the brain needs three things primarily to function well. Uh, that's glucose, oxygen, and stimulation. And by stimulation, I mean neural stimulation. Um, and this is, of course, things like being engaged in something you enjoy doing, exercising your brain by um, working on stuff, reading, um, you know, even things like crossword puzzles, uh, keeping your brain sharp. Neurons need that kind of stimulation to function well. And this, of course, is another reason why in aging populations, when that stimulation tends to decrease, uh, the brain doesn't do as well. And it also explains why, uh, you know, if, if you have a, a great aunt or a grandma who you know, kept working or, or kept her mind sharp by remaining engaged mentally, she probably aged a lot better than maybe another relative who didn't do that. So stimulation is important, oxygen is crucial, and glucose is crucial. Now, two of the best ways to increase blood flow to the brain, which is what ensures that glucose and oxygen get there, are uh, exercise and acupuncture if you have access to it. I think we'll, we might talk about this later in the interview, but one of the main effects that acupuncture has that's beneficial is that it increases blood flow. In fact, I tend to think that that is the primary effect of acupuncture. It increases blood flow, and if you think about it, every, everything we need to heal and function is in the blood. So glucose, oxygen, immune cells, analgesics, anti-inflammatories, Pretty much everything we need is in the blood, and that the blood is the main transport media. So that's that's how we send it around in different parts of our body. So exercise can improve blood flow, acupuncture can improve blood flow, and then there are specific compounds that have been studied that can turn off brain inflammation. Turmeric is one of them, curcumin, but most forms of oral curcumin aren't very well absorbed, or if they are, they they are cleared from the blood pretty quickly. There's a phytosomal version of curcumin. Uh, the brand name uh, is Mariva SP, I think Thorn. Uh, Thorn is a good company that makes it. You'll, yep. you'll see it in some other products too. But uh, th this phytosomal form is better absorbed and uh, has a better effect than just eating turmeric, for example. Um, skullcap is a is an herb that has been studied in this regard. It tends to reduce neuroinflammation, as does green tea extract. 
those are three compounds that are really good for turn, turning off neuroinflammation. And in terms of healing the blood-brain barrier, which is obviously an important step in this process, alpha-lipoic acid can be helpful with that, and then glutathione repletion. And I say glutathione repletion because taking oral glutathione is not a very effective way of repleting yep. your glutathione status. Uh, it will just be digested. They're just a combination of three amino acids. It won't really raise intracellular or serum glutathione levels. The best way to do that is by taking glutathione precursors like ALA and NAC. Uh, whey protein, if you tolerate whey, is a is is particularly the or exclusively the non-denatured forms of whey are is a really good way of raising glutathione levels so you can do that by taking whey protein or even better you can just do it by having raw dairy products or fermented dairy products that have whey in them so chris we launched about three days ago a, a line of, of whey protein that is made directly from raw milk without a cheese manufacturer in the middle using basically like the very highest end, uh, lowest temperature, et cetera, et cetera, processing. Um, can I send you a bag of that stuff? Um, I'll get yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Yeah, cool. it's, it's, I've been using whey for years. I, I have brain inflammation. It's been a problem forever. Uh, and this is, this is basically the stuff that I use after all that stuff. So uh, anyhow, I'll, yeah. I won't take up the show on that, but if, if you're up for trying some whey, I, I think it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it has some really interesting therapeutic uses. Cool. But uh, as far as this goes, by the way, since we're talking about it, to get this kind of effect or to maximize it, um, it's best to take whey on an empty stomach without anything else. It won't, I mean, certainly whey has other benefits if you put it in a smoothie or something and make a shake out of it. But to get the, the maximum impact on glutathione uh, status, it's good to take it alone uh, on an empty stomach. What about adding a little bit of fat for absorption? A little bit, like, you know, 5%? Uh, yeah, teaspoon 5%, I think, I think that could be helpful. I wouldn't do much more than that. Yeah, cool. I'm stoked to hear uh, your take on this. Uh, certainly, my my own you know, biohacking experience on dealing with brain inflammation. I haven't tried Skullcap for it, but green tea totally and glutathione has been, I would say, transformative for me. And for a lot of the people, you know, who I coach, uh, you know, they, they're using it to recover faster and you know, for basically mental performance enhancement. Uh, so, very very cool ways to fix the brain bar- the blood brain barrier. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, this probably goes without saying, but you want to remove all of the things that are destroying the blood-brain barrier in the first place, um, like making sure that you're eating a, a paleo-primal type of diet with that's low, low in food toxins and uh, avoiding things that aggravate the gut, like antibiotics, uh, medications like birth control pills, making sure that you're doing stress management. That's crucial. Uh, stress, there will, there's nothing that will tank your gut faster than chronic stress. Uh, there's so many studies that, that clearly demonstrate that chronic stress and elevated cortisol levels just uh, destroys gut function and makes your gut leaky. Uh, this is bad news for some people, but alcohol has been shown, even, fa- even fairly moderate alcohol consumption has been shown to cause leaky gut. So if you have gut-brain issue, uh, alcohol is probably not a good idea. Maybe a drink or two a week it may not play a significant role, but uh, the studies I've seen have shown that even as few as three to four drinks a week can increase intestinal permeability in susceptible people. So the, the, the alcohol thing, it, it, there's so much pressure from people, even in the paleo community, to drink you know, red wine, which has its own set of toxins on top of the alcohol itself. And, mm-hmm. and have you seen have you seen the data about alcohol increasing carbon monoxide levels in the blood for a little while? No, I haven't seen that. That's an interesting little uh, little side point. But if you're dealing with optimal states of mental performance, or just dealing with you know, not very good states, either of those kind of says alcohol might not be your best friend there. Mm-hmm. And then, in addition to leaky gut, uh, I just 
tweeted a study out not too long ago on alcohol and SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And of course, that's rel uh, related to everything that we're discussing here because gut dysbiosis causes inflammation and inflammation starts that whole brain degenerative neuroinflammatory process. So uh, definitely not a great idea if you've got this, this, this kind of pattern going. It's funny you mentioned SIBO. I was about to ask you about you know, your take on that. And for our listeners who may not know about that, uh, SIBO is one of those things where you have too much bacteria growing in your gut in the wrong place. And uh, maybe if you just tell us sort of how prevalent you think it is and how important you think it is in the overall you know, health of people, not just you know, chronically ill people, but people who are walking around but maybe just aren't as strong as they could be. What, what's yeah. your take on SIBO and its importance? Yeah, I think it's pretty important and pretty common. Uh, there's a, a, a guy down in at UCLA, Dr. Mark Pimentel, who's done a lot of great research on the connection between SIBO and IBS. Um, there's a very high correlation between irritable bowel syndrome and small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Uh, it's over 40%, last, last study I saw, which means that 40, over 40% 40 of people who are diagnosed with dysfunctional bowel disorder, which basically means the doctors don't know what it is. Um, irritable bowel syndrome is a diagnosis of exclusion, which means if they rule out that you don't have inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, you don't have an infection, then they, they say that you've got irritable bowel syndrome. And what Pimentel's work is, suggests is that, no, actually, in, in many cases, it's it's not just a functional disorder. It's caused by an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. Now, the small intestine, contrary to the large intestine, should be mostly sterile, which means it shouldn't have that much bacteria in it at all. But what happens in this, in this condition is you get a translocation of bacteria from the colon, where it belongs, into the small intestine, particularly the, the lower parts of the small intestine. Now, the terminal ileum, which is the last part of the small intestine, is where a lot of our nutrients get absorbed and, and you know, the, the final stages of digestion happen. So if you've got an overgrowth of bacteria in your terminal ileum, you're not going to absorb nutrients from food very well. You're not going to digest food very well. You're going to experience gas and bloating and changes in stool frequency. And, and then, of course, you're probably going to experience all of the brain-related functions that we've been talking about here, too. Another connection uh, that a lot of people aren't aware of, and I just did a, a radio show about this not too long ago, is the connection between SIBO and skin problems, including acne vulgaris, acne rosacea, eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis. Uh, most skin problems uh, that, I, that are commonly experienced have a connection with the gut. And... Um, this is mediated by a lot of the same mechanisms that we've already talked about. You get inflammation in the gut and bacterial overgrowth. Uh, this, these bacterial species produce endotoxins like lipopolysaccharide, which in turn uh, can cause more inflammation. And the skin is the largest organ in the body. The skin is actually classified as an organ. And when you have an inflammatory process, it makes perfect sense that the largest organ in the body will be affected by that. Um, so SIBO, through this gut-brain-skin axis, is, can, can cause all of those skin conditions or at least make them worse. Um, and in my practice, whenever anybody comes in, uh, comes to me with a skin issue, the very first thing I do is treat their gut. And this is true even if they don't have gut symptoms. An interesting statistic is that about 30 to 40 percent of people with intestinal permeability do not experience any digestive symptoms at all. And the way it manifests for them is with other things like skin problems or cognitive issues, depression, etc. I was just going to say, it sounds like this is an extremely complicated process and one that a lot of people don't know very much about. What is the one thing you do when somebody walks into your practice and, says, and they obviously have acne? What is the thing you do to heal their gut? Well, I put them on a oh, – well, let me answer that in a second because you actually made me <laughs> think of one, of one of the biggest problems with the way that the conventional paradigm approaches this. So the, the thing that actually usually happens when people go to the doctor with a skin problem, especially when they're a teenager, before they even 
I mean, some doctors will suggest dietary changes, but most of those kids get put on antibiotics. And while certain antibiotics like rifaximin are effective against small bowel bacterial overgrowth, other antibiotics like the broader spectrum ones like tetracycline that they tend to put kids on for acne actually make small bowel bacterial overgrowth worse. So you have a really uh, cruddy situation here where kids are going in for acne, they're getting put on these broad spectrum antibiotics that totally wreck their gut flora and cause more small bowel bacterial overgrowth leading to more acne and then possibly end up on drugs like Accutane, which have been shown to cause Crohn's disease and other types of inflammatory bowel disease and, and even death, you know, some really, really serious drugs with serious side effects. So getting back to your question, Army, the first thing I do if they're not already on a, a paleoprimal type of diet is put them on that. But a lot of my patients are already doing that because a lot of people come to me through my, my radio show or my blog, you know, their readers or listeners, so they already are, are doing that. If they're already on a paleoprimal type of diet and they're still experiencing symptoms, skin issues, I'll put them on a low tyramine and histamine diet. And I've found this to be very helpful in most cases. Some problem, some people have problems breaking these compounds down due to reduced activity, enzyme activity. Monoamine oxidase is what breaks down tyramines and diamine oxidase breaks down histamines. And there are genetic mutations um, that can cause insufficiency of enzyme activity here. And there are some environmental causes too. And so reducing the intake of those compounds, which are mostly histamines and tyramines are mostly found in fermented foods, which ironically are very good for the gut. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, some spices, some fruits and vegetables. You can you can Google for a list. I've got also a full comprehensive list in my in personal paleo code. And then I'll put them on on probiotics and possibly prebiotics, especially because they're not eating fermented foods for a temporary period of time. And in certain cases, if the SIBO is is really bad and the gut is really inflamed, I'll use the GAPS diet, which is a uh, similar to the paleo diet for those of you who don't know about it, but it, it actually completely removes disaccharides and polysaccharides. So you, um, the, the main difference between it and the paleo diet is on the GAPS diet, you don't eat any starch. And then it really emphasizes um, bone broths, which are rich in glycine, which is uh, involved in the, the regeneration of the intestinal lining. That is awesome advice for people who have uh, who have acne. I'm I'm actually really pleased to have that on the show because we get questions like that uh, in our forums and on the blog sometimes too. And the idea of going low histamine to reduce that allergic response, that really deep inflammation in the skin, it certainly worked for me when I was younger, and it, it's mm -hmm. it's a really important technique. There's a couple more things on that note, Dave. Okay. Uh, you can find diamine oxidase. Um, there's some products called uh, hist histame, I think, is one that has it in it. So you can help the process along a little bit um, by taking that. And the other thing I want to mention about skin issues is that I believe that most skin problems are autoimmune in, in yes. the sense that they're mediated by leaky gut. Uh, some researchers like Alessio Fasano believe that you can't even have an autoimmune disease unless you have a leaky gut. So... I will treat people with particularly eczema and psoriasis for autoimmunity, and that involves, of course, a, a dietary strategy. An autoimmune paleo diet is a good start where you remove nightshades and eggs uh, and dairy products, at least for a time, and so you can add them back in and see how they affect you. But then it also involves optimizing glutathione status because glutathione helps regulate the immune system, as does vitamin D. Uh, and, you know, a number of other strategies for helping bring the immune system back into balance. And that it, produces great results as well. You've got a, a pretty strong arsenal there. I, I work with some really good acupuncturists, but most of them are more Chinese herbal but not nutritional uh, focused, especially more like the orthomolecular side like you are. The combination of those two for controlling immunity is, is maybe one of the more powerful things I can imagine. Yeah, it's interesting because acupuncture, 
uh, I always say that the, it has three beneficial effects. One is increasing blood flow. The other is reducing inflammation. But the third is regulating Th1 and Th2 balance. So those are the two different sides of the immune system that often get imbalanced in autoimmunity. I'm going to actually skip ahead because you brought up Th1 to Th2. One of my... One of my theories about why we're facing so much autoimmunity today, even people who don't know that they're having autoimmune problems oftentimes are. Right. And I, I believe it's coming about through changes in the called the probiotics of the planet, but basically the, mm -hmm. the microbes that are out there in our soil and in the air. Uh, and there's an increased aggressiveness and there are mycotoxins, these toxins that are formed by things in soil, mostly fungi. And they actually affect that TH1 to TH2 immunity on top of a bunch of other things. So number one, what's your take on mycotoxins in the environment and their impact on health and autoimmunity? And are you worried about those in fermented foods? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this isn't something I've looked into in great detail, um, so I wouldn't consider myself an expert on it. I'm aware of the idea that mycotoxin contamination in fermented foods could cause a problem, but I guess I'm a little bit skeptical because I just, fermented foods have such a long history of effective use, and um, I, I do pay attention to, you know, I use kind of three pillars for evaluating uh, the usefulness of, a, of an intervention. One would be, uh, evolutionary wisdom, traditional wisdom. Uh, the second would be modern scientific research, and the third would be clinical experience. So for something to kind of pass through my filter and get the thumbs up, it has to, it has to test out on all three of those levels. So I've seen some modern research that suggests that mycotoxin contamination in fermented foods could be problematic. But when I weigh that against my clinical experience and the, the thousands of years of traditional use of fermented foods, I have a hard time reconciling that conflict. So I suppose I'd say I keep an open mind, but right now it's not something that concerns me greatly. I had a hard time reconciling it too, but based on personal just experiments, I finally realized it's very batch dependent. Like. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to predict because you know, for one person in one house where you know, the biome looks like something, they may have something and someone else might not. But yeah, it, it's one of those things that is, uh, is certainly they're not always bad in my experience. I just know sometimes like something's not right here mm -hmm. and I, my, mm -hmm. my intuition or just repeated trials led me to think that's probably what it was. But I wouldn't say all fermented foods are bad because yeah. this can happen in them. You know, what I would say too is that um, I think it's really context dependent. And you mentioned the, the gut microbiome and its relationship with the, the overall global biome and microbiome. And I think that's a really important thing to discuss because, uh, and in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm writing, I'm not sure when the show is going to air, but I'm writing an article that's going to be published, uh, tomorrow on February 10th about this, uh, phenomenon here where, we are experiencing as a species a permanent, irreversible change in our collective gut microbiome. Yes. And the consequences of this are shockingly uh, great and, and shockingly misunderstood. So, uh, you know, we have trillions of bacteria and yeast in our gut that for millennia we've existed in a, in a symbiotic relationship with the gut bacteria is comprises 75 to 80% of our immune system. It has impacts on everything from weight regulation to brain function, as we've been discussing to, you know, circulation. And there's, there's pretty much nothing that the gut isn't involved in, in some way. And for, for the vast majority of evolutionary history, that gut microbiome was fairly stable. I mean, it, it was diverse and it varies from culture to culture depending on what they eat, but it, there weren't global, uh, systemic changes happening. But since the advent of antibiotics, which of course have lengthened our li lifespan and saved many lives and play very useful roles in, in certain situations, but the consequence uh, or the downside of antibiotic use is that we are now, each generation is seeing a 
a progressively compromised gut flora. And that is, I believe, and I'm sure you would agree based on what you've just told me, that may be the single greatest contributing factor above and beyond diet to the modern disease epidemic. Yes. This, this dramatic increase in autoimmune mediated diseases. And, and, there, and as you said before, a lot of diseases that we previously did not consider to be autoimmune, we are now understanding are autoimmune, at least in part. And, and because leaky gut is a precondition for autoimmunity and because dysbiosis in the gut is one of the major contributors to leaky gut, I think it's pretty easy to make a case that this, this irrevocable change in the gut microbiome that has been brought about by poor diet, antibiotic, and other medication use is, is uh, really one of the significant contributors to this modern disease epidemic. Chris, that brings up an excellent segue to my next question, which is about one of the most consumed foods that's been altered that affects our gut flora that I know you've talked a lot about in your blog, and that's dairy. What do you think of pasteurized dairy? Are there any benefits to it? And can you also talk about maybe some of the risks or negative effects? I think in general, pasteurized dairy should only be consumed if it's fermented. Pasteurized dairy fat probably is has some still some some ben, significant benefits like butter um, with conjugated linoleic acid and and some of the fat soluble vitamins. But the problem with pasteurization of of dairy is that it kills the beneficial bacteria that are normally present in raw dairy products and. Those bacteria play a really important role in helping us to, to break down lactose and digest the milk proteins. And when you remove those bacteria through pasteurization, it uh, creates a problem for a lot of people who aren't who, who don't have the ability to break down lactose, which is you know a fairly significant percentage of the population. The other issue with pasteurization is you it doesn't tend to kill all the bacteria. And the ones that survive will proliferate. And so you can, you can actually, it's a myth that there's never any foodborne illness that's caused by pasteurized dairy products. There actually is. And because of the risk of a single culture that, uh, or, or strain of bacteria that doesn't get killed in the pasteurization process can really proliferate because there are no other beneficial bacteria keeping that growth in check. Another problem with pasteurized dairy is that it, usually is comes from cows that are raised in confinement feeding operations and so they have no access to grass which is their natural diet instead they're eating grains like corn and soy and uh and you know if you've seen any of these documentaries they're also eating gummy bears chicken beaks you know all kinds of just (laughs) weird stuff that they never should be eating in the first place not to mention antibiotics and and hormones and things like that so i consider pasteurized dairy to be a processed food and raw dairy to be a whole food the benefits to, to raw dairy are probably apparent based on what I just mentioned, but they're, they're the flip side of pasteurized dairy. So raw dairy has all of the beneficial bacteria still still in it, uh, but also it tends to be higher in the things that we're trying to get from dairy, like the fat-soluble vitamins like A, D, and K2, conjugated linoleic acid. Uh, when cows are grazed on grass, particularly lush green grass in the fall and the spring, you'll see much higher uh, amounts of these micronutrients than you will from cows that are growing on, that are raised on uh, gummy bears and grains. And most raw milk, well, all raw milk is raised on grass. Uh, Some might be finished with a little bit of grain, but raw dairies have to uh, pass some very stringent standards that confinement dairy operations don't because of the perceived risk of contamination of raw dairy. So they tend to be much healthier animals. They tend to be more better taken care of, and they tend to eat their their uh, natural diet, which is important in terms of the nutrient content. For the people who are even more interested in the details about which milk is the best to choose, There is some debate about whether A1 milk versus A2 milk from different species of cows and, as you just talked about, what the cows eat might 
differentially affect their immune response. What mm-hmm. do you think of the whole A1 versus A2 milk debate? Yeah. So uh, I have to, I'll just come right out and say that there's not really any solid peer-reviewed scientific evidence that supports this distinction. Um, I've talked with Matt Lalonde and a few other people about it who have a, a better grasp on biochemistry than I do. Um, but from what I've gathered in, in literature and from talks with you know PhD level biochemists like Matt, um, it, it really can't be substantiated with our current knowledge. However, um, there's a I do pay attention to anecdotal evidence, and I have uh, patients who swear that they can tolerate A2 milk, whereas they can't tolerate A1 dairy products. Uh, I get raw milk from the only farmer that I'm aware of in California that uses exclusively A2 cows, and I can tell you that personally, having consumed raw A1 milk before that and, and switching over to the A2, that um, that number one, it just tastes a lot better because of the fat content is higher. It's almost like a mix across. It's like halfway between milk and cream. It's, it's very rich and, and tastes good. So on that basis alone, I'm happy to have it. But, uh, I never really had any problems with, with raw A1 milk, but I noticed that A2 just goes down that much more smoothly for me. So, um, scientifically I, I can't, see any support for that distinction, but anecdotally, uh, it, it does seem that some people notice a difference. Quick question there. Do you know whether the Kerrygold stuff is A1 or A2? To the best of my knowledge, it's A1. I'm you guessing that to too, do, but I don't know. Yeah, well, you need to do... I mean, I pretty much assume all milk is A1 unless proven otherwise, because uh, the A1... The cows have been so interbred here in, in the states that that the vast majority of them are A1, and the farmer that I get my milk from does genetic testing to make sure that the cows are A2, and that's expensive. It's time-consuming. It requires some, you know, he is able to look uh, at, you know, to go to a cow auction and look at cows and kind of just by looking at them at this point, determine which ones are likely to be A2. And and then he tests them. And, you know, sometimes they're not and sometimes they are. So a, a lot of farmers are not willing to, particularly farmers who are doing it on a commercial scale. I mean, this this is a family farmer. And I, I have a cow, you know, he, the only way you can get milk through him is, is through a cow share program. So um, I think it's pretty unlikely that, any commercial commercially produced dairy would be A2 unless they're doing that kind of genetic testing. And, and, and if they were, it seems to me that they would be promoting it in some way, but, but maybe not because not a lot of people know about this distinction. Would your, uh, your secret cow whisperer uh, slash dairy provider <laughs> be interested in you mentioning his name on the air so that he could get a few more cow shares or was he a Yeah, I, I think so. Um, let me. Uh, do you guys have show notes? Absolutely, full transcript. I, I, yeah. yeah, I feel like I should check with him because actually uh, we just got sh- shorted this week because there's, <laughs> there's too many uh, too many people joining and not enough cows yet. He can't keep up uh, because it's so popular. So we we only got half of our normal order. So maybe selfishly, I'm not going to mention it yet. <laughs> no, I, I respect that. It, it sounds kind of weird, but but getting good quality stuff is is hard to do. And one of my favorite. Um, beef suppliers, um, Alderspring, uh, which is just phenomenal grass-fed meat. Uh, since I started buying their stuff five or six years ago, I think the the ribeye is now four or five times more than it was. You know, I, I have our time spending fifty bucks on a steak that used to cost twenty bucks. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'll, I'll check with him. I, I actually just saw him last night. We picked we picked up our order last night, and uh, he had just sent in the genetic test for two new cows that he's interested in. So if he gets these new cows, he'll he'll have a lot more capacity online. So I'll, I'll check with him. Nice. There's a couple more things we need to go through before we reach the end of the show. And the first one is I want to list a few vitamins here and just have you kind of off off the top of your head talk about. Uh, literally just a second or two for each one. Like how much do you think most people ought to be taking in what form and maybe any other really short context about why they might be necessary. All right. 
All right, let's go. Selenium. Uh, crucial for thyroid function, especially T4 to T3 conversion. Some evidence suggests it protects against autoimmune thyroid disease. Best form, methyl selenocysteine. Uh, dosage, uh, 200 micrograms a day if you're not getting much from food, maybe 150 if you're getting some from uh, Brazil nuts or other selenium-rich foods. Iodine. Also critical for thyroid, it forms the backbone of thyroid hormone. A lot of people are deficient, I think, because it's hard to get from the diet. Pretty much only present in seafood, uh, seaweed, and, and some fish particularly. Uh, dosage varies a lot, but the key critical thing is you got to start at a, slow, at a low dose, like four, 400 micrograms or so, and build up slowly over time because it can provoke and exacerbate autoimmune thyroid conditions if you take too much too fast and if you take it without selenium. Excess bromide can also cause iodine deficiency symptoms, So, uh, and iodine can, can detox excess bromide. All right, fish oil. Ditch it and just eat a lot of fish. <laughs> eat, uh, my recommendation is eat one pound of fatty fish at least a week, and then if uh, take some fermented cod liver oil on top of that. You're not taking that for the EPA and DHA so much as you're taking it for the fat-soluble vitamins like A and, and D and some E and quinones. Uh, too much fish oil, like this, this 30 to 40 grams a day idea, can probably oh. increase the risk of oxidative damage and heart disease, so please don't do that. Yes. Um, and if you're not eating fish for whatever reason, yes, I do think it's probably a good idea to take something like wild salmon oil and maybe one, one gram a day. How about krill oil? My jury is still out on krill oil. I, I think it has promise. Uh, I'm just waiting to see more peer-reviewed research that's not done by um, Neptune Naturals, which is the company that <laughs> makes krill oil, before I really make a determination. Fair answer. CoQ10. Everyone who's on a statin should absolutely be taking CoQ10. Um, it Statins deplete CoQ10, and muscle function, ATP production is dependent on it. It's an important antioxidant, especially for cardiovascular, preventing cardiovascular disease. Uh, for those who aren't on statins and who are eating a diet that's fairly rich in red meat, and particularly if you're eating red meat that's rare, uh, I don't necessarily recommend supplementing with CoQ10 unless you have a particular reason to do so and you're not getting it through the rare red meat. How about pyroloquinoline, which I always just call PQQ like everyone else. PQQ, yeah. You know what, Dave? I don't know much about that, and I don't really use it in my practice, so I don't feel qualified to comment on it. That's, uh, that's a totally good answer, and I appreciate you, uh, you saying that. Uh, iron? I see way more people with too much iron than too little. I, you know, in, in the time that I've been practicing, I think I've diagnosed maybe... 15 people with iron deficiency anemia. However, there's not a week that passes, and I'm not exaggerating, that I, that I don't see somebody with uh, iron overload, particularly men, but also in women. Iron, like everything else, too, too, too little is not a good thing, and too much is, is a very bad thing, especially in the case of iron. It causes inflammation and oxidative damage. It can wreck blood sugar regulation because it destroys pancreatic beta cell function. I think it's one of the lesser-known causes of hypogonadism, especially in young men, because it really trashes pituitary function, and, and that's where the stimulating hormones are produced that lead to androgen production. So um, iron overload, big problem, little-known problem. I'm going to be writing a series on it, and I'm also going to be giving a 40-minute talk on it at, at the Ancestral Health Symposium in, uh, in Cambridge in August. Oh, that's going to be really... Uh... Really interesting to hear. I hope that you broadcast that one. Final, yeah. final vitamin, B vitamins. What's your take on those? Uh, crucial for the methylation cycle, which in turn is one of the most fundamentally important processes in the body. Um, ATP production, neurotransmitter synthesis, detoxification, all, all dependent on methylation, proper methylation. Uh, and a lot of people have issues in, with the methylation cycle. However, B vitamins can produce nausea and other side effects, especially if they're taken on an empty stomach. Best to take them with meals. Um, I don't recommend supplementing with them unless you have a reason to do so, like I just mentioned. 
And one of the best tests that I know of for determining functional B vitamin status is the Metametrics Organics profile, which looks at uh, organic acids in the urine uh, that are intermediaries of uh, the methylation cycle. And, and if, if you have a deficiency in, in B6 or B12 or, or methyl tetrahydrofolate, that will uh, cause an increase in either urinary methylmalonic acid or, or figlu. Um, and and then you can do what's necessary uh, after that. Because you, you really know your stuff. I, I love hearing you talk about urine organic acids on the show, which half of people probably never heard of. But if you really want to know what's going on in your metabolism, I think that's one of those lab tests that a lot of people just, just don't know about, including practitioners, but it's important. I, I, thank you for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'd like to just second what Dave said. It obviously sounds like, you know, you know your stuff, but I'm guessing you didn't learn all this stuff in school either. So for anyone out there who wants to learn what you know, what are your top three sources of information about health? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I am, I'm a total research dork, as, as you probably know. So I have uh, RSS feeds and alerts set up for different topics in, um, that I'm interested in, like gut-brain axis or gluten intolerance or um, you know any number of subjects. So I, I get notified when new papers are published on that. I like to read... I like to start with the you know the primary sources and read the scientific literature itself, but I also do follow a lot of uh, well not a lot anymore but some blogs. Chris Masterjohn I, I uh, really like a lot. Stephen Guillenay, um, some other more obscure uh, blogs. I I study textbooks on subjects that I get interested in. Uh, right now I'm reading Janeway's Immunobiology, which is a really fantastic uh, textbook on immunobiology. And then I take some continuing education classes and 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 go to conferences um, like you know ancestral health symposium. But also I, I've trained a fair amount with Datis Karazian and in thyroid stuff. And I'm uh, planning to go to the MECFS Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Conference next year. And you know, uh, so I I, I guess it's uh, I often get questions. People ask me like, where would you go to to study and learn what you've learned? And unfortunately, it's a difficult question to answer because you're right. I didn't learn a lot of what I uh, you know know from my my schooling. Uh, I learned the basics, and those basics prepared me to go out and and build on that foundation myself, which is pretty much what I've how I've educated myself. It, it's that whole systems thinking thing that we talk about a lot on the show and, and on the blog where you, know, you can't treat the body as a collection of individual components, that it's a whole system. And obviously, you, mm-hmm. you've got that down. Yeah, and Chinese medicine, I have to say, that's that's they've known that for over 3,000 years. So I have a lot of respect for Chinese medicine for for really basic perspective like that. Well, tell us a little bit uh, towards the end of the show here about the Healthy Baby Code and the Personal Paleo Code and what you're doing with those. Yeah, so the Healthy Baby Code came really out of my own experience with my wife. Um, we started trying to get pregnant a little bit later in our lives. Uh, I'm 37 now. Uh, we started when I was 35, and she uh, was 38, and it didn't happen right away. And so um, we were both already on a pretty good diet, and that was... So I, you know, being who I am, I just decided to dive into the scientific literature and, and, and traditional sources and learn as much as I could about what kind of nutrition and supplements could promote fertility, promote healthy pregnancy and, and development of the baby, and then a healthy natural birth and, uh, you know, promote lifelong health for the baby. And and after I did that... Um, I offered a talk on on the subject here locally in the Bay Area, and it sold out within a few days of putting it up. And I, I just thought, wow, there's there's a lot of demand for this information. Um, sorry, that's my healthy baby screaming in the background. <laughs> um, there's a lot of demand for the information, and I can't couldn't think of a, a better thing to get out there in the world because it there's so there's so many health problems with kids it just breaks my heart to see that they could be easily solved in most cases by proper nutrition so healthy baby code 
uh, is an online program that basically breaks it down step by step. Here's exactly what you need to do from a nutritional and supplementation perspective to optimize your chances of getting pregnant in the first place. Here's what you need to do once you're pregnant to ensure the growth of a, of a healthy baby. And then, you know, here's what you do uh, after the baby's born uh, to nourish yourself while you're nursing. And here's how you introduce foods um, once it comes time to do that. And these are all the things that I've been following, of course, with my wife and our six-month-old daughter. And uh, it's, I've gotten a lot of great feedback on the program. And um, it's, uh, you can find it at healthybabygoad.com. Thanks for doing that. I just want to say uh, I am a firm believer that that if you get the first two years and pregnancy right for a child, it's far more important than what university they go to for their lifelong success. <laughs> it, it just matters so much. If people only You're understood right. that one thing, we would actually transform the quality of life for the whole next generation. I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, earlier we talked about the explosion of research on the gut-brain axis, but another area of this really exploding is called the developmental origins theory, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And it basically holds that the nine months in the womb are the most influential period of our entire lives in terms of determining our health. And that's a little bit depressing for those of us who are already born, <laughs> but it, uh, hopefully it's inspiring for those who are considering reproducing and having kids and who have the opportunity to give their kids that 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 first start uh, that can stay with them for the rest of their lives, literally. Well, we're we're 100% aligned on that, and uh, certainly I would love to send you a review copy of the Better Baby book uh, when when Wiley says it's ready. Um, if you'd like to check that out, and yeah, I would love to give some feedback. That would be sure. really important just for the next sure. generation. I mean, that, that's that's why I wrote that, why you did yours, and yeah, it's absolutely. it just matters. So. Uh, on that note, we're we're running out of time, and I, I'd like to hear you say something about the personal payload code, and we have one final question after that. Are you okay. going to go another maybe two minutes? Yeah, sure. Yeah, right, personal payload code won't take long. I mean, the, the way to think about it is it's the black box manual for the paleo diet. So I, I developed this because a lot of patients who are coming to me were confused about the paleo diet. They read, you know, all Rob Wolf and Mark Sisson and all these different bloggers and everyone's saying a slightly different thing. And my perspective on it is, look, with the paleo diet's a fantastic starting place, absolutely. But within that context, there's still a lot of room for individual variation. So yes. in, in the personal paleo code, I take people through a three-step process for figuring out what their own ideal version of the paleo diet is based on their own process of experimentation, which is the only way that you can figure that out. So you don't have to listen to me or Mark Sisson or, or Rob Wolf. You can find out through your own experience, but a very systematic way of doing that what works for you and doesn't work for you, and then you fine-tune it based on your own goals and, and, and circumstances and needs. For example, if you're a competitive athlete um, that's you know training for competition, your needs are going to be completely different than someone who's mostly sedentary and is like a computer programmer uh, and, and doesn't exercise much. So that's, I think, was the missing piece for a lot of people with the paleo diet. And um, then along with that, there's a meal plan generator where you can plug in exactly what foods you're eating and not eating and hit a button and it will spit back a, a full paleo meal plan with only the ingredients that, that are safe for you to eat. So it's totally customized and personalized and uh, that's at personalpaleocode.com. Cool. I, I love the, the idea that you have to self-experiment to get it right, which is totally true. I mean, we, we call that biohacking on uh, mm -hmm. on the Bulletproof Exec, but the idea that you're just going to, you know, turn turn a crank and treat everyone like kind of a robot that's coming off an assembly line, it's not like Doesn't that. Doesn't work. Yeah. All right. Final question that we ask everyone who comes onto the show. What are your top three recommendations for people who just want to perform better at every aspect in life? So across all the domains you've looked at, medical, spiritual, psychological, everything, just your mm -hmm. top three from yeah. the top of your head. I'm going to keep this really simple. Uh, eat real food would be number one. Sleep more and better would be number two. And cultivate pleasure and enjoy life would be number three. That is an awesome list. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Tell us your URL one more time so we can make sure everyone who wants uh, to find you can find you. Yeah, you can find me at 
chriscresser.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-K-R-E-S-S-E-R. And uh, I've got a radio show called Revolution Health Radio that's in iTunes, and you can also access it on my site. Um, I'm at Chris Cress- uh, Facebook. Uh, dot com slash Chris Cresser LAC and and Twitter uh, Chris Cresser as well. So uh, look forward to seeing you online. Awesome, thank you, Chris. Thanks, Dave. I really had a good time. I appreciate you inviting me on the show. If you enjoyed this, you can help by leaving a positive ranking on iTunes. You can learn more about biohacking by coming to bulletproofexec.com or following us on Twitter, checking out the blog or commenting on our forum, which we just revamped. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.